James chapter 1, and let's go ahead and pray, shall we? Gracious Father, I am keenly aware tonight of my insufficiency to this task. Uh, You've given us a wonderful spirit. You have laid everything out for us in such a way that we can claim what you have for us, and sometimes I feel like I'm in the way of that. I know, Lord, even today, there's been challenges and things that have arisen that have maybe caused me to drift from my focus. I confess that to you and ask you to forgive me. Um, Lord, I, I want your word to be applied to people's hearts today, and I don't want to be in the way of that. So, Lord, would you help us to that end? And may people see Jesus tonight. May Christ be lifted up. And, Lord, if uh, I'd, I'd much rather you do it with me, but if you must do it in spite of me, either way, I'm happy for that. Because I do sense very clearly that you're trying to do something, a work in this place. And I, I want to help with that. I don't want to be in the way of it. So, Lord, would you bless your word? And would you speak to our hearts today, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. It's likely that James was the first New Testament book that was written. The author, James, was the half-brother of the Lord Jesus. It's an interesting thing. He did not come to believe on his brother until after he saw him in his resurrected form. Now, before we're like, what's wrong with you, James? How would you feel if your older brother did everything right and never failed? If there's ever been a time that a parent said, why can't you be more like your brother? It was on old James and Joseph and Judas and Simeon and at least two sisters. But what we do know about James is he was zealous for the law. So much so that in the early church, he still held on to some of the trappings of it. I would say at least initially, he and Paul weren't the best of friends. Co-laborers for sure. But they saw things differently. Now, they would come to be hand in hand. Let me be this very clear. Despite what people like Martin Luther said, James is not at odds with Paul. They're two sides of the same coin. But, but James writes a book here that is intensely practical. It's been called, and rightly so, the Proverbs of the New Testament. And one of the key words in James that's used six times in five verses is the word perfect. Now, we understand that this use of the word perfect does not mean sinless. It means mature, well-developed, well-rounded as a Christian. And this plays into the overall theme of the book of James. The, The overall theme of the book of James is a behavior that displays our belief. A behavior that displays our belief. To live in such a way as to display a mature Christianity that benefits yourself 
and others. Something that we're trying to accomplish in granite. And by the way, granite is only a a tiny piece of the puzzle. According to Deuteronomy 6, the the number one responsibility for, for bringing up a child in the Lord is it belongs to the parents. But we do what we can to help, just as the church does what it can to help. And what are we trying to do? We're trying to produce in the church parents that are well-rounded and mature Christians. And we're trying to produce over there young people that are well-rounded and mature Christians. There's so many that claim to be saved, but their behavior would oftentimes suggest otherwise. Or at the very least, a lack of spiritual growth. James makes an interesting statement in chapter 2, verse 17. He says, even so faith... If it hath not works, is dead. Being alone. Now, some people have mistakenly latched onto that and said, see there, James is teaching that if you would be saved, it's a mixture of faith and works. But that can't be. Because the whole of Scripture teaches, for by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it's the gift of God, not of works lest any man should boast. Romans is, uh, Paul is very clear in Romans that if you mix grace with works, you nullify the grace. It stops being grace. See? So a basic rule of Bible interpretation is if you've got a bunch of scriptures that say one thing and one or two that seem to say another, you go with the majority readings and figure out the one or two. Well, this one isn't that hard. When, when James talks about a, a belief that's lacking a behavior, he's not saying that you're not saved. He says, faith without works is dead. If you've got a tool or something cordless that has a battery, and that battery goes dead, how useful is that tool? It's not, is it? It's not. At home, we've got a very nice Dyson vacuum cleaner that has started to stop holding a charge. It's a nice vacuum cleaner. When that battery's dead, it's a paperweight. Hey, Christian, you may have all kinds of faith, but if there's no power in your life, If there's no works and behavior to back that up, then to the world that's around you, you are a dead Dewalt. You're not doing anybody any good. The world doesn't need to see somebody that proclaims to be a Christian and then cusses like a sailor and acts the fool on the weekends. No, the world needs somebody that claims faith, but also there's some works in their lives that back it up and demonstrate to them that Jesus is alive in me. Many Christians would say they desire to live as mature Christians, but they need instruction. Well, guess what? James has some for us. And so we want to talk about tonight, James's marks of maturity. What is present in the life of a Christian that signals a continuing maturity in their faith? And he gives them to us right off the bat in James chapter 1. Here's number one. You're not going to like it, because I don't like it. Here we go. 
patience. I have never met anybody who is naturally patient. Some are more patient than others. Some have no patience at all. But all of us, by our nature, want what we want, and we want it right now. A lot of times, my problem with God is not that he doesn't give me what I want. It's that he doesn't do it when I want him to do it. I struggle with the Family Life Center. I believe with all of my heart, God's going to provide the resources we need to build it. You know the thing I struggle with more? Okay, Lord, but when? We need it now. But God's bound to my timetable. He who transcends time. He who is ever in the present. He's worried about my timetable. Patience. Look at what it says, verse number one. James, a servant of God of the Lord Jesus, and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes which are scattered abroad, greeting, my brethren, count it all joy when you fall into divers or different or various temptations, knowing this, that the trying of your faith worketh patience. But let patience have her perfect work, that ye may be perfect and entire, wanting or lacking nothing. What does patience mean there? It means endurance and constancy, particularly amidst suffering. Would I offend the dignity of the pulpit too much if I take my coat off? It's warm in here. And this is camel hair. I don't know if camel hair actually comes from a camel, but I know camels must be warm. That's better. Endurance and constancy, particularly amidst suffering. The word temptations here in verse number two does not mean an allure to sin. This is one of those times that the 1611 English has transformed a little bit. Temptation now takes what it's the constant connotation that, that an allurement to sin. That's not what it means here. It means the trials and testings that are common to life, particularly the life of a saint. What does this imply? It implies that suffering is part and parcel in the Christian life. Oh, I would love to tell you that once you get saved, life all of a sudden brightens up and everything works just the way you want it to, but that is just not so. The fact is, when you come to Christ and you start living for him, it brings with it trials. It brings with it troubles. It brings with it suffering. But if you would grow as a Christian, you must endure trials and learn how to bear up against them and come out victorious. You will never be the Christian you ought to be if you don't learn how to push through and see victory on the other side. I got news for you, friends. Before you can enjoy the sweetness of victory, you got to know what it is to lose. What they used to say on ABC, the thrill of victory and the agony of defeat, that poor guy, that ski jumper, falling down the side of the mountain. The agony of defeat. That's for some of y'all's time. Some of you know what I'm talking about. Old Jim McKay, I think, was his name. I'm dating myself now. J.C. Ryle said trials were intended to make us think, to wean us from the world, to send us to the Bible, and drive us to our knees. Our good friend Charles Haddon Spurgeon said, Trials teach us what we are. They dig up the soil and let us see what we are made of. 
George Mueller, the great example of faith and prayer, said to learn strong faith is to endure great trials. I have learned my faith by standing firm amid severe testings. Those of us that think that we're supposed to navigate the Christian life without any kind of resistance, without any kind of hardship, that's just not accurate. Peter told us, 1 Peter 1, 6, wherein you greatly rejoice, though now for a season, if need be, you're in heaviness through manifold temptations, that the trial of your faith, being much more precious than of gold that perisheth, though it be tried with fire, might be found unto praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ. He goes on to say in chapter 4, beloved, think it not strange concerning the fiery trial which may try you. That's not what he says, which is to try you. See, we don't like it when the messenger gives us bad news, even if it is true. Peter doesn't hold back and say, well, you might run into a buzzsaw. He's saying, no, you are going to run into a buzzsaw. Think it not strange concerning the fiery trial, which is to try you, as though some strange thing happened unto you. But rejoice! What? In that trial, rejoice! Well, we're talking easy preaching, hard living here. Rejoice in as much as ye are partakers of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory shall be revealed, ye may be glad also with exceeding joy. If ye be reproached for the name of Christ, happy are ye for the spirit of glory and of God resteth upon you. On their part, he is evil spoken of, but on your part, he is glorified. You can't expect to be all that Christ wants you to be. You can't expect to be more like Jesus without trials and sufferings and difficulties. If he went through it, how much more should we? What did he tell his disciples in John 15 regarding persecution? If the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love his own. But because you're not of the world, but I've chosen you out of the world, therefore the world hateth you. Remember the word that I said unto you, the servant is not greater than his Lord. If they have persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they have kept my saying, they will keep yours also. Do you remember Peter and John? They went into the gate, beautiful there, went up to the temple, and the lame man was there. Asking in alms of them, Peter said, silver and gold have I none, such as I have, give I unto thee. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And immediately his feet and ankle bones gained strength, and he leaped up. And what did they get for their trouble? Hauled into the Sanhedrin. They're preaching the truth. What did they get from their trouble? Standing before the court. They tell him, don't you dare go and preach again. And they can't help but speak the things that they have seen and heard. So they go and preach. And what do they get for their trouble? They get beaten. What's the Bible say they, they felt like when they walked out? It says they rejoiced in that they were counted worthy to suffer for Jesus. Huh. What were the people of the early church that went to the Colosseum? Think of us complaining about the little things we face. What would Jim Elliott say? Takes a spear from the Alka Indians that he's trying to reach. What would him and Nate Saint say? Beloved, there can be no growth without resistance. If you want to build muscle, what do you got to have? Resistance. By the way, I'm told biologically, 
that what happens when you build muscle is you actually have tiny tears in your muscle that then as they heal, your muscle grows. Now, obviously, I know that from experience. I'm going to tell you something. I have a fantastic physique. It's just well insulated. I'm keeping it safe for when it counts. There has to be pain. What's the old saying? No pain, no gain. And you can go too far with that. But there is pain, there is discomfort, there is resistance. And the same is true spiritually. Without resistance and without adversity, there can be no growth. And if we're to grow and become more mature as Christians, we've got to learn patience. I was having a conversation with somebody just the other day about patience. I've been told my whole life, do not pray and ask God to teach you patience. Don't do it. Because he will. And it's never fun. Can I tell you, I can't think of a time that I've ever knowingly asked God to teach me patience, and yet he keeps bringing things into my life that do just that. And it usually involves some government office. Or something else. So, James says the first mark of a mature Christian is patience. I'll tell you what else we need. We need wisdom. Verse 4 says, but let patience have her perfect work, that you may be perfect and entire, wanting nothing. And if any of you lack what? Wisdom. Let him ask of God, that giveth to all men liberally. And upbraideth not, and it shall be given him. What is wisdom? Wisdom, simply put, is knowing and rightly applying God's word. Let me tell you what wisdom is not. Wisdom is not the same thing as experience. It's not. I'll give you a quick example. It's an easy one, a common one. If mom tells a little kid, do not touch that stove, it's hot. Okay, kid says, well, I'm going to do it anyway. I don't believe her. Touches the stove, burns himself. That's experience. Mom meant what she said, and now I've learned a lesson. Wisdom is I'm going to take her at her word and not touch it. There's a whole lot of us got a whole lot of experience. But how much could we have avoided in life if we'd have just used some wisdom? Just took God at his word. Wisdom is not intelligence. There's a whole lot of intelligent people that have no wisdom. I've heard it said of our politicians, what our president needs is our president needs to have a room full of smart people. Wrong. He needs a room full of wise people. Because people that are intelligent have information. People that are wise know how to use it. And there's a whole lot of people that have a whole lot of information and have no idea how to use it. And many of them work for the current administration. By the way, they worked for the last administration, too. I'll tell you what else it's not. It's not savvy. That's an old word. But it's, it's not knowing how to handle a particular situation in just the right, smooth way. You're around long enough, you learn those kind of things. That doesn't mean it's wisdom. It's not being clever. 
And I'll tell you something else. Wisdom is not automatic with age. With all due respect to our president, who is somewhat advanced in his age now, with all due respect, at one point I think he displayed he's a pretty smart man. But it is evident from where he stands on things that he possesses very little wisdom. Our last president was lacking in some wisdom in some areas too. My soul, what kind of shape would America be if we actually got some people in office that have some wisdom? You know? It's not automatic with age. I've known older people that had no wisdom, and I've known young people that had wisdom. Because, again, what is it? It's hearing and obeying the Word of God. There's discernment and insight that only comes as God through his word imparts it upon an individual believer. And by the way, it often has a delayed result. Many times you don't see it until it's been proven. Can I give an example of that? I had no idea how wise my parents were until I got older. Wisdom is justified of her children, isn't it? Sometimes you don't see it right off. Sometimes young people, young people of this generation do the same thing that we did in our generation. They think their parents are absolutely nuts. They just don't understand. They just don't get it. They just don't see it. They just don't. No, you get older and you know what you'll find out? Your parents had a lot more wisdom than you knew they did. Sometimes it's delayed. By the way, it's just like humility. If you think you have it, you don't. I thank the Lord I'm wise. <laughs> you know? If I were to ask, if I were to ask, uh, I don't know, Brother Richard, what do you think your spiritual gift is? Oh, without a doubt, humility. Maybe not. Maybe not. Ever heard the old saying, those people that think they know everything really bother those of us that actually do? Kind of lacks humility, doesn't it? I'm wise. Probably not. In fact, people that are truly wise understand that they haven't begun to plumb the depths of wisdom in God's word. Wisdom is only as good as the soil in which it's found. What do I mean by that? 1 Corinthians 2, verse 12. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit which is of God, that we might know the things that are freely given to us of God, which things also we speak, not in the words which man's wisdom teacheth, but which the Holy Ghost teacheth, comparing spiritual things with spiritual. For the natural man receiveth not the things of the spirit of God, for they are foolishness unto him. Neither can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. You understand, there's some things that people label wisdom that's in the wrong ground. And it's not very good. James chapter 3, verse 13. Who is a wise man and endued with knowledge among you? Let him show out of a good conversation, a lifestyle, his works with meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter envying and strife in your hearts, glory not and lie not against the truth. This wisdom descendeth not from above, but is earthly, sensual, devilish. For where envying and strife is, there is confusion and every evil work. But the wisdom that is from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, and easy to be entreated, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality and without hypocrisy. And the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace of them that make peace. 
That's wisdom that's found in good soil. So how do we get this kind of wisdom? I'm saved, I want to serve God, and I want to have this kind of wisdom in my life. How do I do it? Okay, now I'm going to do my best to take a very profound truth in the Word of God and burn it down to something bite-sized that we can, we can take piece by piece. You ready? Here it is. Ask for it. How was that? Ask for it. That can't be all there is to it. That's what God says is to it. Look at the verse. Verse number five. If any of you lack wisdom, you ever lack wisdom? So you qualify. If any of you lack wisdom, let him what? Ask. Sometimes we try to make things more complicated than they are. It says, let him ask of God that giveth to all men liberally and upbraideth not, and it shall be given him. Periodically, I do things in the school. I'll make deals with these kids. Might be academic, might be athletic. But I'll say something along these lines. If you do this, I got a presidential dollar that's all yours. If you can answer one question from the lesson you had in your class today, I just don't see if you're paying attention. I got this for you. Periodically, I do that. Sometimes during basketball season, I say, hit both free throws and you get get a dollar. Put a little pressure on them, whatever. But every once in a while, to demonstrate this point, I'll say, I got a dollar. Who wants it? And you know who gets it? First person asks for it. See, what in the world is that supposed to teach them? That very simple truth. I've offered you something. All you got to do is ask. You'd be amazed. Now, it doesn't happen that way anymore. But first couple times I did it, you'd be amazed. I say, I got a dollar. Who wants it? Is it a trick? This can't be. And we'd say, that's just dumb, kids. Ask for it. But how many Christians read that verse over and over and over and over and over, and they look around? He don't mean me, does he? There's got to be more to it than that. And we don't ask. Can I tell you something? This this wisdom is abundant. He's not going to run out. What's it say? It says, he giveth to all men liberally, bountifully. Periodically, somebody will call me up and say, Preacher, how big a freezer you got? It's good size, but I can buy another one. What you got? And periodically, some of you, and I'm not fishing for anything right now, I don't guess, but they'll say, Come by, got something for you. And they start loading up stuff. I'm like, Oh, that's plenty. Oh, no, I got more. You know what that is? That's giving liberally. That's giving liberally. What's God saying? I'll give you you as much as you need. 
All you got to do is ask. They give it to all men liberally. One of the few times you'll tell me, I'm, you'll hear me say, I'm all for being liberal. Okay? Liberally, bountifully. But then you know what else? It's not just bountiful. It's not just abundant. It's advocated. He is telling us to do it. He says, he upbraideth not. He's not going to criticize you. He's not going to revile you. He's not going to give you a hard time about it. I want you to do this. I want to give you wisdom. Now, pray, tell me, why aren't all of us the wisest people you've ever seen? If God says, I've got plenty, and I want you to have it. Whose problem does that sound like it is? His or ours? And we need wisdom. Now, here's the crazy thing. I have studied the context of this passage all the way around, and I've come to this conclusion. This is one of the very few unconditional promises that God makes to us in the New Testament. It does not say, if any of you lack wisdom, repent and let him ask of God. Now, we understand repentance is just something we ought to be doing all the way along. It assumes that, but that's not what he says. He said, if you lack wisdom, ask. So why in the world don't we take advantage of it? I think there's two basic reasons. First of all, we don't know how. Well, I just did my job. Now you know how. Okay, so we can check that one off the list. I don't know how to get wisdom. I just showed you from James chapter 1, verse 5, how to get wisdom. Okay, number two. We don't think we need it, and so we don't bother asking. But if we're going to grow, and we're going to become more mature Christians, we must have patience, and we must have wisdom. Number three. And this one seems like it should have been first. But we saved it to last because it's one of those that so many people just make the assumption that it never finds its way into the, into the, into the equation. We need patience. We need wisdom. And if you're going to grow as a Christian, if I'm going to grow as a Christian and be mature, you've got to have faith. James. A servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ to the twelve tribes which are scattered abroad, greeting. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into diverse temptations, knowing this, that the trying of your what? Faith. That's the first thing he mentions. Faith. Now go to the end of the passage. Verse 5, if any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God that giveth to all men liberally, and upbraideth not, and it shall be given him. But let him ask in what? Faith, nothing wavering. For he that wavereth is like a wave of the sea, um, driven with the wind and tossed. Let not that man think he shall receive anything of the Lord. What is faith? Faith is taking God at his word and acting accordingly. That's faith. It seems so elementary. But all the patience and the wisdom in the world is useless without faith. Now, let's talk a little bit just for a minute about what faith is and what it isn't. Faith is not the absence of doubt. 
Now, I know what he says in verse 6, let him ask in faith nothing wavering. Contextually, that, that wavering is not talking about the normal doubts that we deal with. It's talking about a wavering and believing God keeps his word. But Curtis Hudson has the best, has the best illustration of faith I've ever heard. You have a, a continuum, and on one end, you have absolute denial. And on the other end, you have absolute certainty. Anything in between is faith. Now, there's a measure of that faith strength along the way. Some people have stronger faith than others. But when it came to getting saved, how much faith do you need? For by grace are you saved through strong faith. My Bible doesn't say that. It says through faith. So does that mean that the guy that knelt before the Lord and says, Lord, I don't understand everything there is to understand, and this whole thing is real new to me, and I don't know if I can live it, and I don't know. All I know is I'm a sinner, and I need a Savior, and I don't even know if I'm doing this right, Lord, but I'm asking you to save me. Is that guy saved? Sure. What about the guy that comes and says, Lord, I know it's true, and oh, it's opening up to me. The heavens are receding, and I can just see your face, and oh, God, I can hear the bells of heaven. Is that guy saved? Yeah. But you got this poor guy over here. As soon as he prays the prayer, as soon as he asks God to save him, he's struggling. Can I remind you? It's not the measure of your faith. It's the object of your faith. Your salvation isn't determined about how strong your faith is. It's how strong the one you put the faith in is. I'm not going to heaven because I, got, I never have a doubt. And I've heard people say that. If you ever doubt, you're not really saved. God, deliver us from that mindset. My soul. Because that puts the onus on us. That means I have to keep myself saved. No, I asked Jesus to save me, and I've got to take him at his word. That's what faith is. Seeing the word of God and acting appropriately. My Bible tells me, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. It doesn't matter how I feel about it. It doesn't matter how strong my faith is in that given day. I believed on the Lord Jesus Christ and it's up to him to keep the other half. Now, as Christians, should we be growing in our faith? Absolutely. But that doesn't mean there's never going to be doubts. But when there are, all I know to do and I've told you this before. I've had seasons in my life in which I personally have struggled. Even since I've been a pastor, I've struggled with assurance. I've known some pretty godly people that have confided in me that they've struggled with their assurance. The kind of people that you look at and say, oh, my soul, if they're not saved, there ain't no chance I'm saved. So what do I do? What do I tell them? What do I tell myself? All I know to do is what the word of God said to do. Believe on Jesus. I have, and I've got to leave the rest in his hands. <clears throat> but then once you are saved, over and over again in Scripture, what do we see? The first time we see it is in Habakkuk. And then we see it in Romans. And then we see it in Galatians. Then we see it in Hebrews four times. We see the just shall live by faith. You're not just saved by faith. You live in faith. 
<clears throat> Hebrews 11.6, but without faith, it is impossible to please him. All the wisdom, all the patience in the world is not going to get you anywhere if you don't live in faith. Without faith, it's impossible to please him. For he that comes to God must believe that he is and that he's a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. Neither patience nor wisdom will develop outside of faith. But where patience and wisdom live, you can rest assured there will be faith. Where's your faith? Man. There have been a few times here recently that <laughs> my Southwest Virginia accent starting to develop here recently. I didn't used to talk like you people. <laughs> I've, just, I've just shook off the Alabama accent I picked up, and now I'm picking this one up. And let me tell you, it's, it's real in our house. Asher gets excited when it's time to go to a hotel. <laughs> what in the world was I saying? Oh, I'm talking about faith. A lot of us, and I, I have this in my own life as well, a lot of us, we're very geared towards the evidence. Here's the evidence. This is what we have to work with. And this isn't, this isn't meant to be getting on to anybody or anything like that. But one of the things we've been struggling with lately is, and maybe this has improved, I don't know, but um, our missions giving is fantastic. And I thank the Lord for it. And people have been giving to projects. It's like the, the, uh, you know, the, the parking situation over here. That, that came in like that. Thank the Lord, you know. Um, you know, individual projects, people just jump in and want to help with that, and I'm so thankful for that. But the general fund giving, the, the day-to-day stuff that we use to pay the bills around here has been down. Now, here's the thing about designated. It's not ethical to take designated funds and move them somewhere else. Now, it is technically legal if you make clear to people that all designations shall be considered to suggestions. But anybody that has done any church work at all will tell you it is never a good idea. And so you have to go through the whole trouble of going to individuals and saying, I know you gave, you know, $500 to, you know, a new communion table, which don't do that. We don't need one. But, you know, really we could use this better over here. Can we change it? That, that's how you handle that kind of thing. But the, the general fund has been down. And I look at something like that, and I'm just like, man, alive. What are we going to do? I know what I'll do. I'll go against the grain. I don't like doing this, but I will preach a message on giving. And so I labored over that thing, and I prayed over that thing, and <laughs> I, I agonized over that thing. I hate preaching on money. I just do. And I preached it, and that's going to fix it. It did not. Might have got a little worse, actually. <laughs> At some point, you know what I have to do? I have to go back to the book. But my God shall supply all your need 
according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. And I'm either going to trust the book or I'm not. Right? And as you can see, the lights are on. The, uh, I'm not sure if it's the heat or the air conditioning is on. Feels like air conditioning at the moment. That's working. Go to the bathroom. The water's running. Okay. Every got, everybody got paid last week. Let me set Foster. But, you know, no, he got paid. He got paid. You know what I see? God's doing what he said he'd do. And sometimes he lets things get a little tight just to see if we're going to have faith. Where do you need faith in your life? You got a loved one you need some faith over? Maybe it's not yours, but maybe there's somebody you love in their marriage and needs some faith. Maybe you've got a need, a health need, a financial need, a job need. It's going to require some faith. Because at some point, if we're going to grow as Christians, at some point, we've got to dismiss our rational thinking and step out, believing that God's going to do what he said he would do. I am convinced of this. When Peter got out of the boat to walk on the water, I am convinced, by the way, don't throw shade on Peter. He's the only one got out. Peter started to sink. You wouldn't have got out the boat, and neither would have I. Not sure I'd have been in the boat to begin with. I'm not a strong swimmer. Peter gets out of the boat, and I believe with all my heart, as he steps out of that boat, as long as his hands are on that boat, it's just regular water to him. But he takes his hands off, and he is fully at the discretion of the master. That's when he starts walking. And sometimes God brings us into places in our lives that he forces us to take our hands off the boat and exercise a little bit of faith. And without faith, it's impossible to please him. But you start working on some faith, and before long, you'll bear up into patience. And in that patience, you'll develop wisdom. And before you know it, you become a mature Christian that's growing and developing. We've come this far by faith. So this is my challenge for you tonight, my so what. Right now, look at yourself. Use the mirror of God's word and look at yourself. Are you a stronger more mature Christian tonight than you were six months ago. You should be. I should be. But maybe you have to say, no, I'm not. Well, then here's what you need. Patience. Wisdom. Faith. That's what James tells us. The marks of maturity.